Hey everyone, how are y'all doing? Good, good, thanks for being here today. My name's Russell, I'm one of the pastors. Um, and as Nathan said, uh, we are a brand new church plant and our mission statement is basically no matter where you are on the spiritual journey, there's room at the table for you. And so last week was just such a blast. So many of you were involved and served in so many ways and so we're really grateful and really excited to see uh, what God does with this new church plant. Before we get into our message today, on that note, I just wanted to briefly say something. Um, I sent an email out this past week, but I just wanted to reiterate that as a word of encouragement for all of us. Um, so there's a concept in soccer called the battle of the fives. And the way it goes is a team is most vulnerable to being scored on during one of five five-minute segments during the game. A team is most vulnerable to being scored on during the first five minutes of the game during the last five minutes of the first half, during the first five minutes of the second half, during the last five minutes of the game, and the first five minutes after your team scores a goal. So essentially, a team is most vulnerable to attack at the beginning, at the end, and right after an exciting triumph. Enter Hope Brooklyn. We just launched last week and it was a blast. It was so much fun. But as I was reflecting this past week, I realized that we could succumb to a temptation. And the temptation would be this, that now that we're launched, the table is full, which is so far from the truth. The vision that God gave us and gave Hope Brooklyn was never to launch a church. It was to be the church in Brooklyn and throughout New York City. So, so long as there are lonely people in this city, we're not done. So long as there are people who think that Jesus is mad at them and doesn't desperately love them and want them to come home, we're not done. The table is not full, all right? So I just want that to be encouragement because it was, so celebrate last week. It was a blast. Take a breather. It was so much fun, but we still got a lot of joyous work to be about. Cool? All right. So we're starting a new series today uh, called Questions. If you're joining us for the first time, um, Questions is essentially we've been talking about this for the last couple months. Um, questions were generated from you guys. Essentially, we gave a, a phone number that you could text in your questions about the faith, about Christianity, um, whatever you want to know, and the most asked questions we have written sermons on. Um, and so we're starting that today. Now, surprisingly, like, no, none of y'all wanted to know how much Jesus loves you. You know, <laughs> I didn't get that question. <laughs> um, no softballs, no softballs, but I'm really excited. I'm really excited to delve deep into some of these very complex, very deep, controversial questions of the faith. And so before we get to today's topic, I have three qualifiers I want to say, and I'm going to say them every sermon before we start. Number one, many of these questions that we're going to address possess interscriptural tension. Interscriptural tension. That is to say that you could find verses or passages that would seem to fall on one side of the, the, the topic, and you can find scriptures and verses and passages that might fall on the other side. That is to say that within the church, there's not a cohesive, um, unified view on many of these topics, okay? Number two, well, number two, we have three pillars that guide 
our community. If you've been here a while, you know them. First, we are crowds and disciples. That is to say, you don't have to be a Christian to be a part of our community. And what that means, especially for some of these topics, is when we're talking about behavior, the the Christian way of life that we're being invited into, if you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're off the hook. You just sort of get observed, you get a a front row pass um, to observe, to see what Christianity is all about, Um, but it doesn't necessarily apply to you. So we are crowds and disciples. Secondly, we're a community of the story. Picture this one like a, a giant river, right? You have a giant river flowing through a region and you have tributaries flowing off of that river, right? Many of these questions that were asked that we're gonna address don't relate to the river. They relate to the tributaries. And that's important because for us, Christianity is less about propositions that we ascribe to and more about a story that we orient our lives around, the story of Jesus. Which means, and this brings us to our third pillar, we eat face to face. We're gonna talk about some controversial stuff. We're gonna talk about some stuff that we might not agree on. I'm gonna be completely honest about my interpretive method and where I'm coming from with some of these questions and you might disagree and that is awesome. We lose as a community if we don't end up at this table together and if we don't end up at that one. That's how we lose. We don't lose by having conversation. We don't lose by disagreeing. We don't lose. We lose if we don't end up at the table. Sound good? All right, oh, one more qualifier, (laughs) sorry. Stanley Hauerwas, he has this line, he goes, there's nothing more harmful than to answer a malformed question. There's nothing more harmful than to answer a malformed question. Not to say that your questions were malformed, but generally, I think we've all had this experience where we ask questions or we say something, but there's a question beneath the question, isn't there? Like we're asking something, but we really wanna know about something beneath it. So as much as possible, I'm going after the question beneath the question, okay? Would y'all pray with me before we get started today? Lord, we confess that your story is astonishing. That the way you revealed yourself to the people of Israel, the way you revealed yourself in the person of Jesus, the way you reveal yourself and the church. It's astonishing. You are a God who loves to the point of death. We confess we don't understand your story completely. We have pasted over eyes. We have clogged ears. We have hard hearts. But we want to respond to your light. We want to respond to your grace, as we address these really tough topics, these these issues and these questions, which even in your scripture, even in your story, you haven't fully ironed over. We must trust then, Lord, that that's okay. That the conversation and the debate is okay. The wrestling with it is actually part of the story. But you were quite clear that the world would know us by our love. The world will know us by the way we love one another and love those who aren't yours. So I pray, Lord, as we discuss these tough questions, as we open up our hands and say, teach us, illuminate, enlighten, uh, that beneath all of that would be a deep love 
for you and for one another. A deep love. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. It's in your resurrected name we pray. Amen. All right, so today I thought we'd start with probably the most softball of the questions. Hell. We're going to talk about hell today. What is it? Where is it? Why is it? Does God send to it? What is hell in the scriptural story? Now, um, one point of observation. So far as I know, I haven't died yet. Um, unless there's like some alternative universe going on, which is not outside the realm of plausibility. But so far as I know. So I can only speak on this side of death and eternity. I'm going to quote a little bit from a, a book called The Great Divorce which is a really fascinating book. It's by a guy named C.S. Lewis, and it's an imaginative portrayal of heaven and hell. Now, I need to say imaginative portrayal. It's a work of fiction. It's not theology, but it's really fascinating the way it sort of stirs our imaginations to reconceive a topic that we, that we might think we know pretty well. And there's this line in it. Basically, the way the, the structure of the book is Lewis is the narrator, and he's being taken uh, around heaven by a tour guide. So if you've ever read Dante's Inferno, you know, Dante is taken through the, the, the layers of hell by Virgil, same idea, only through heaven. And Lewis is being taken um, by his tour guide, George MacDonald, who is a Scottish pastor and author. And MacDonald has this one line I think is good for us to start. He goes, you can't fully understand the relations of choice and time till you are beyond both. I was originally going to try that in the Scottish accent, but it just never panned out, so I, I scrapped it. You can't fully understand the relations of choice and time until you are beyond both. We are stepping into the realm of time, both temporal and eternal, and into the concept of free will. And therefore, we can only sketch outlines of this and no more. That needs to be said at the start. What also needs to be said is when you look at scripture, when you look at these topics of the afterlife, which, we are, which are mysterious, which we can only sketch outlines of, scripture, both uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and the Greek scriptures, the New Testament, when they talk about the afterlife, they talk in the symbolic and in the imaginative. That's important. Their language is symbolic and imaginative. Because if you haven't experienced something, you can only speak about it by way of analogy. I've never broken my tibia, right? But someone might say breaking your tibia is like having a thousand needles plunged in the same spot in your leg. I've never broken my tibia. I have had one needle plunged into my leg. By way of analogy, I can get at, oh, it's kind of like this. It's not a thousand needles plunged into your leg. It's not a literal, you know, one for one, but it's imaginative, it's symbolic. So that's important when we, when we talk about um, the afterlife. So here's what I wanna do today. I wanna briefly go through the biblical words that are used to get at the concept of hell or the afterlife, and then I wanna get at the big question that we're all thinking after that, okay? So there are four words in the scriptures that connote hell. Three of them are in Hebrew and one is in Greek. Sheol, the pit, for our purposes today, because it's only one sermon, suffice it to say that Sheol and the pit are pretty synonymous. Gehenna and then Hades. Sheol, the pit, Gehenna, and Hades. Those are the words that scripture uses to talk about the afterlife. So first, Sheol. Sheol comes from the Hebrew root Sheol, which means to ask or to receive. 
So Sheol is essentially a place that is constantly asking and receiving more, right? It's found 65 times in the Hebrew Bible, and it's regarded throughout Israel as the dwelling place of the dead. The dwelling place of the dead, independent of their character. That's important. So when you die, whether you are righteous or unrighteous, you go to Sheol, all right? There are four uh, attributes about Sheol. First, it's opposite heaven. It's down. So when you read Hebrew scriptures, they talk about Sheol being down, heaven being up. So Psalm 139.8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Though they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. So it's opposite heaven. Sheol is down, it's into the earth. Sometimes Sheol is personified as death itself. So you have 2 Samuel 22.6, the cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who can give you praise? So you have scriptures that sort of personify Sheol as death itself. Third, there's a form of existence in Sheol. You don't disappear, you're not annihilated. There's a form of life of Sheol. So we have Isaiah 14, nine, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. Now we don't know what kind of existence you have in Sheol, but there's, you're not gone. It's not like you're written out of the story of life. You still exist, but we just don't know in what capacity. And then finally, it's opposite heaven, it's down, it's personified as death. There's a form of existence. God is in Sheol and has power over it. So Psalm 139, eight again, if I ascend to heaven, you were there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you were there. Psalm 49, 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So Sheol is kind of like in the pit there. It's a holding place of the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous dead. Hades. Hades is found in the New Testament, and in essence, Hades is the Greek word for the concept of Sheol. It's the same idea. Hades is the dwelling place of the dead. It's down. There's a form of existence, and God is there and has power over it. It's the place of the unseen. So at one point, um, Jesus is talking, and he's, he's uh, pronouncing judgment on Capernaum. He goes, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. But you might have noticed, talking about Sheol, the pit, and Hades, None of those get at the idea, the modern idea of hell, right? When we think of hell, we think of this place of punishment. We think of this place of torment, um, of destruction. And that's because um, there's another word that is translated hell. So it's really fascinating. If you read the NRSV translation of the Bible, uh, just so you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. But the NRSV translates both of those languages into English, right? Um, when it comes across Sheol or Hades, it transliterates it. And that essentially means they pluck the word out of the Hebrew or Greek lexicon and they just put it in the English language. Example, so we have a word air, A-I-R, right? The air. 
The Greek word for heir is heir, alpha, epsilon, rho. So English, we didn't translate heir, the Greek word heir, into something else. We just sort of plucked it out and put it in our own vocabulary and says it means the same thing. Does that make sense? So with Sheol or Hades, when you're reading this translation, it doesn't translate it. It just puts it in English as Sheol or Hades. You might have run across it. But there's another word, another Hebrew word, that whenever you see it, it translates it hell. And that's the word Gehenna. Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is a compound word. I know it's a lot of word study. You didn't, you didn't sign up for this. This is the best way I know how to do it, guys. <laughs> Gehenna is a compound word. Ge and Hinnom. Ge means land or earth, and Hinnom is a name. So you see it throughout the Hebrew scriptures as the land of Hinnom, the valley or the sons of Hinnom. Historically, Gehenna was a place. It was a place in southwest Jerusalem where Israel, uh, where Jews would practice a form of idolatry. Um, They would actually uh, sacrifice their children, some of them would sacrifice their children in fire uh, to the god Molech. So it was a place of deep religious syncretism, of deep religious idolatry. In 600 BC, that practice that happened in Gehenna of sacrificing children uh, to the god Molech, that practice was condemned by one of the last kings of Judah, King Josiah. And so you read it in Second um, Kings, which is a, a historical account, says he defiled Topheth, meaning King Josiah, which is in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Ben is son, so the sons of Hinnom. So that no one would make a son or a daughter pass through fire as an offering to Molech. So the practice of sacrificing their children to this god in fire was discontinued around 600 BC. But it had, been ha- it had happened for so long, notoriety ensued, right? You can't just unremember that. Um, it'd be like uh, for our 21st century, the town Auschwitz. Auschwitz used to have a history before the 1940s as a town in Poland. It will forevermore be known as a place of deep evil. You just can't erase that. Same idea with Gehenna, same idea. From, even after it's discontinued that practice, it's forever known as a place of deep abominations. So much so that about 50 years later, the prophet Jeremiah, when Israel's in the Babylonian exile, he says this, he goes, for the people of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house that is called by my name, defiling it. And they go on building the high place of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, Gehenna to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth until there is no more room. So as Gehenna evolves, as history turns into legend, as the story changes, throughout time, two important things happen that you can see in this passage and the symbolic understanding in Israel's worldview of Gehenna. One, it becomes a place of fire. It is just connoted as fire. And two, it becomes the place of the evildoers. 
So those who burn their children there will in fact be burned there and destroyed. So for the next 550 years and into uh, the first century, into Jesus's day, when Jesus was born, Gehenna had this idea of a place of fire where the evildoers are destroyed, all right? And so when you read in the New Testament about the afterlife, you see Sheol or Hades, and then you see Gehenna. Now this is important for us because um, you might discover that our way of thinking about heaven and hell is not exactly the New Testament way of thinking about it. So Paul and the, the Jewish understanding was when you died, you went to Sheol or Hades. You went to this holding cell that awaited a final day. So it was like this two-tiered afterlife. When you died, you went to a holding cell. Whether you were righteous or unrighteous, didn't matter. You went there and you awaited the last day, which is called many things in the New Testament. Uh, it can be called the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the parousia. Essentially, it's when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, all is put to right, all is revealed, and Gehenna consumes its last victims, so to speak. And so you see verses like Revelation 20, and the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. Or you see in 2 Peter 2, which was a letter written to the church in Rome, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, into Gehenna, and committed them to chains of deepest darkness. Oh, I'm sorry, that shouldn't be hell. That should be, uh, that's probably either Sheol or Hades. And committed them to chains of deepest darkness to be kept until the judgment. So what happens on that last day? Is Gehenna a place of eternal torment? Is it a place of total annihilation, we don't know. The scripture doesn't outline that for us. But it does present the real question because we can't get around it. It seems like so far as we can see, it seems like on that last day, there will, there will be some who enter the new heaven and the new earth and there will be some that enter the hell of fire. But that presents the real question for us, right? How could a loving God send someone or allow someone to enter this Gehenna of fire? If he's truly loving, how could one of his beloved creatures, I mean, theoretically, end up in this place or destroyed? And C.S. Lewis, when talking about hell, he goes, let's be clear, I don't find this idea tolerable. And just so you know, I don't like this concept. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't find it tolerable, but I do find it astonishing. Because we pretty much already answered our question. How could a loving God allow someone to be cast from his presence? Love. Love. Love does not coerce. Love will not force. Love will beg. Love will plead. Love will put on, give up God likeness and put on flesh and come to earth and die to prove how deeply he loves you. But love will not force you to reciprocate a relationship. C.S. Lewis writes, 
to make things which are not itself and thus to become, in a sense, capable of being resisted by its own handiwork is the most astonishing and unimaginable of all the feats we attribute to the deity. God created creatures and gave them the capacity to choose, even to reject him. That is one of the most astonishing feats that we attribute to God. He gave you, he gave you life and then gave you the possibility to choose death if you wanted. Hell, the word hell, it comes from the Germanic word, which means to cover, to cover. So hell is this covering over. And I like that because it's very similar to another word. Um, Augustine, some of you may have heard this name, Saint Augustine uh, was a Christian who lived in the fourth century. If you grew up in the West, pretty much all of our theology was forged by him, by his writings and thinking. And Saint Augustine, the way he describes sin, uh, and briefly, we've talked about this before, but sin is essentially a falling short. Sin is we were created to live in perfect wholeness with God, but we're unable to do so. We fall short in so many ways. But he describes sin with the word curvatas, curvatas. And curvatas is this curving inward. It's this curving inward. So you have hell, which is a covering over, and sin as curvatas, which is this curving inward. In essence, the idea is every day we are becoming a more heavenly or a more hellish creature. Every day we have a choice. We are able to open ourselves up to true reality, to true joy, to true beauty, to others, or we can shut ourselves up and to total self-absorption. So in Dante's Inferno, when he gets to the last layer of hell where you expect to find fire, you find ice. And Lucifer is in the center of it all, frozen solid. The point is hell at its core, sin at its core is total self-absorption. Total self-absorption. It is curving inward. It is being unaware of anyone or anything else or any beauty or any joy or any truth or any reality. So in the great divorce, when Lewis is walking with McDonald, McDonald says this, he goes, for a damned soul, like someone who was about to be damned, a damned soul is nearly nothing. It is shrunk. It is shut up in itself. Good beats upon the damned incessantly as sound waves beat on the ears of the deaf, begging him to open up, begging it, open up. Give yourself a possibility for kisses, for love, for otherness. But they cannot receive it. Their fists are clenched. Their teeth are clenched. Their eyes are fast shut. First they will not, in the end they cannot open their hands for gifts or their mouth for food or their eyes to see. In other words, the gates of hell are locked from the inside for now. We all hold in our hands the choice. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. If sin is this curving inward, and it's all our decision, if we're curving inward or the opportunity of opening up and blooming, then we put ourselves in our own hell. Now what happens at the last judgment, I cannot say. I, when Jesus returns, I don't know. Now we do have some clues. So in Matthew 25, he gives a parable. 
And he says when the king returns, he likens it to sheep and goats. He says the sheep will be, um, will enter into the new heaven and the new earth. The goats will depart into the lake of fire. But he says this, he goes, depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not prepared for us. It was not for us. In other words, there is one good. There's one good in the world. It is God. All comes to life that turns toward him and all dies that turns away. Think of it like a plant, right? A plant that receives sunlight, blooms, opens, grows. But if it doesn't have the sunlight, if it cuts itself off from the sunlight, it doesn't die overnight, but it slowly withers. It slowly shrinks and shrivels. There's a process ongoing right now where the light is dawning into the darkness because Jesus, God made flesh, died. He subjected himself to the greatest tragedy, the greatest amount of brokenness and evil in this world, and it didn't defeat him. And so light is almost like at the core of the earth, exploding outward, like yeast working through the dough. It's opening outward. And every part of creation will have a chance to see the light and decide what to do with it. They can open themselves to it and come to life, or they can curve inward and curve inward and curve inward. And all will be purified on the last day. See, the reason why this is a tough concept and a tough topic, because if this process is ongoing, as I'm contending it is, if every day we're becoming more heavenly or more hellish a creature, if we're opening ourselves up to the truth, the reality of the world, or we're shutting ourselves up in the dungeons of our own mind, the reason why that's difficult is because it's not something we see. It's happening on the level of the spirit. It's decisions we're making that no one really knows. Have y'all seen the movie Shallow How? I know this is a weird analogy, but go with me. So Shallow How tells the story of a guy who's given a gift to see the inside of a woman. So um, when he sees a woman, how she's depicted as uh, her physical attributes is really what she's like on the inside. So there's this one woman who is um, deemed really, really physically attractive, but she's not a very nice person. And so what Shallow Hal sees is, uh, you know, you can imagine, we'll just go with that. That's kind of what's happening. Inside, we're making decisions every day to open up to the truth of the world, to open up to light, or to shut ourselves in and to become more self-absorbed and self-obsessed and shrinking. There's something happening on the last day, as Paul says in his letter to Romans, God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. All will be revealed. We'll all see it. At that point, there will be no denying. There will be no wavering. It will all come into the open. And we'll know which parts of reality has opened themselves to light and which parts of reality, like a dead branch, has just died and is cut off and thrown into the fire. In a sense, to enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth. But to enter hell is to be banished from humanity. What is cast or cast itself into hell is not a human, it is remains. 
See, this stuff is ongoing and it's, it's in the spiritual. It's, in, it's beneath the physical. It will just be revealed on that last day. Maybe there are many who are already not very human and we'll see it on the last day. It'll just be remains that is cast into the final fire. In other words, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom and therefore the most insufferably painful demonstration of God's love because he will not coerce. He will not force you. He will beg. He will try to prove how deeply he loves you. He's done his part. He's reconciled the world back to himself. Light has pierced through the darkness and is slowly spreading. And the choice is ours every day. Do we turn to the light? Do we recognize it? Do we receive the gift? We don't have to do anything. We just literally have to yield to it. Or do we reject it? Because we cannot accept the reality of the world as he says it is. There is one good. It is God. We did not create ourselves and we don't get to call the shots of our own lives. We yield to the creator and we live lives that worship him or we don't. And if we don't, then we live lives that worship ourselves, and we shut ourselves in and we shrivel. But the God who laughs, the image of the God who laughs as he sends people into hell is not biblical. Let's go ahead and just call that out. That's not in scripture, okay? He's looking for one reason to infiltrate your defenses, to invite you to the table, not one reason to kick you out. I think that's something important because we have this idea that if we just mess up, whatever mess up means, God's like, oh, you're done, you're out. Not even close. He wants one reason to bring you into his joy, to ravish you with his grace. Not one reason to get you out of his face. But he is the truth. His light is dawning. It's our choice. The ball's in our court, so to speak. Do we see it? Do we respond to it? Or are we shutting in and he's banging on the door? He's standing at the door knocking. Do we open or not? But then what if now becomes the question? If this is for the, the, the last day, the second judgment where all is revealed, what about now? Well, there's this really mysterious concept in scripture. If you want to get really weird, let's do it. There's this mysterious concept called the descent into hell. So remember, in the New Testament, or I'm, I'm sorry, in the biblical worldview, in the biblical understanding of the afterlife, when we die, we go to Sheol or Hades. We go to this provisional holding cell. And maybe we're conscious of it. Maybe it's like we fall asleep and we wake up at the last day. I don't know. But there's a provisional holding cell that holds all the dead. You're not out of God's book. He's written you in the book. And on the last day, all are resurrected. Some to life some of who are remains to the final burning away. But there's a concept <laughs> called the descent into hell. So we have this statement of faith called the Apostles' Creed. It was developed in like the third and fourth century. And essentially it's a telling of the story. And there's a line in the Apostles' Creed talking about Jesus. And it said, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And he descended into hell. On the third day he rose again from the dead. And that comes from uh, the letter 1 Peter. It says, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. 
He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and preached the gospel, the good news that God loves you, that he's reconciled the world back to himself, that he wants you. He preached the good news to the spirits in prison, meaning those who have already died. That's a mystery, because essentially what it's saying, what we're affirming, is that when Jesus died, he entered Sheol in Hades, and he announced the gospel there. Light dawned there. I don't know what that means. I'm gonna be honest with you. I affirm it. That's what it says. I sort of take it at face value, but it does answer a question for us. For those of us who ask, what about those who lived before the time of Jesus? What happens to them? Well, we have our answer. They heard the gospel. Light infiltrated, and they had a choice even there to close up or to open up. And that also answers the question, what about those who die after Jesus who never had a chance to hear the gospel? Well, If he entered Sheol once and for all, time's not an issue for him. Everyone, it's basically the biblical writers are saying that everyone is given the opportunity to hear the truth of the world. The truth of the world that God created the heavens and the earth. The earth rebelled and the entire story of scripture through the people of Israel to Jesus and the church is telling about that God's relentless pursuit, that relentless journey to bring his beloved creation back into his arms. Heaven and earth were united. They've split. Now they're united again from the inside out and it's slowly working itself through the entire earth. And Jesus descended into Sheol and preached the gospel there. There is no place in the cosmos that has not heard the good news. There's no place in the cosmos where the light has not dawned, essentially. After, uh, in the great divorce, after the line where McDonald says, a damned soul is nearly nothing. It's shrunk up. Lewis asked in despair, well then, can nothing reach it? Can nothing get there? And he answers, he says, only the greatest of all can make himself small enough to enter hell. See, if this is true, if sin is curvatus and hell is covering over, and essentially those who are covering themselves are shrinking, then hell is just particles which is really interesting in the great divorce because you find out that hell was just like a, a, a drop of dew in the, the grand reality of this Scottish highlands, which was personified as heaven. And essentially Jesus made himself smallest of all to enter into hell and said, even you, you can be set free, you can come home. I want you to come home, but I won't force you. I won't force you you still have a choice. So where do we end? I love this line. Hell is a state of mind. You never said a truer word. And this is from The Great Divorce. And every state of mind left to itself, every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind is in the end hell. But heaven, heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly, for all that can be shaken will be shaken, and only the unshakable remains. All that can receive the light will receive the light, and the parts of the the tree that are turning away, that are dying, they'll be pruned off at the very end. So from our page in the story, we die. We enter a land of the dead, Sheol or Hades, or the Catholic concept of purgatory, or a sleep that awakens on the last day. Don't know, scripture doesn't make it clear. God 
is the only real. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is the only real. God is the only good. All that look to him are like a plant that bloom widely, independent of what they've done. All who look to Christ, God made flesh who received the gift of his light, bloom widely. All who look away are enter curvatas and shrivel into nothing. Jesus, the real God, made himself so utterly nothing that he entered into the smallest crack of one self-imposed dungeon, hell, and preached the good news that they can come home, that they need him, that he's not angry. Just come to the table. Become a child of God again. But you can't do it without him because he's the only truth. Anything less than that will mean oblivion. And there's a refining process in place happening right now, happening every day. We make millions of decisions every day that make us more of a heavenly or a hellish creature that open ourselves up to others and to the world and to the only reality there is who is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or we make decisions that close off from it and shut ourselves off from the light and choose to worship ourselves in all various ways. Death has been the ultimate offense on this creation and it has been destroyed. It is done. God has dealt with it. And all that can be shaken is being shaken. The light is permeating through the darkness and it's all turning back to light or it's being shaken off. And on the last day, like, a, like the final snake skin, it will be done and the new heaven and the new earth will be fully united. How could a God who is love send or allow his creatures to enter this place or this state of mind or this oblivion which is outside his joy and life and love? How could a loving God do that? Because of love. It's all love. He will not violate our choice. The nod of a head, the shrug of shoulders, the slightest yield to love, and he will ravish us with grace. He's not angry, but he is knocking on the door. Please open. I'm not angry, but please open and I will show you what you were made for. You will become more human than you've ever been, more human than you dreamed of being. And then I'm gonna end with this, uh, this line from a Catholic theologian, Hans Irvon Balthasar, who I really like. And he says that while scripture requires us to affirm there is a hell, it does not oblige us to claim it must have inhabitants. Meaning, that the more that we get to know Jesus, the more we realize he is a merciful God. And though I have to affirm based on the scriptural story that there is a place, there is a, a state of mind, there is a final purging away of the last bit of evil and decay on God's good earth, I don't have to affirm that it has inhabitants. Because as merciful as Jesus appears to us right now, I have deep hope that it's even more merciful than I can imagine. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you were the only good. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you were the only good. And you were shining into the darkness and you're begging for your creation to look at you and we're scared to look at you because what if you're angry? What if the light hurts and kills? 
but that's not what you do. You're only a God who knows how to bring to life. You're only a God who knows how to give life. All who look to you, all who open themselves up to you will live and will become more real than anything they've ever been before. And all who close themselves off from your invitation will wither away and become nothing, will be remains. Lord, we confess we don't understand this concept and it scares us. It scares us. But we want to follow you. And so if there's anyone in this room right now and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Jesus follower and maybe you're scared to still call yourself a Jesus follower but you're, like, you're maybe sitting here thinking, okay, perhaps I want to open up a bit. I want to learn more. All right, Jesus, if, if this is true, if you are the only good and you don't intend harm, but you intend good, then I give you a chance. <laughs> I open up to you, I yield, I, I, I nod my head. Show me what is real. Would you just pray that? Would you just ask that? Pray to the God who you're not sure exists and say, Jesus, I'm listening. I'm opening the door. Who are you? Who am I? Show me reality. And for the rest of us, those who call ourselves Jesus followers, would we remember that every day we're being invited to open ourselves up to light. We're being invited to open ourselves up to others that you were the only good God. We want to worship you better. We want to follow you. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for entering into the smallest crack of the darkest place and even there, infiltrating it with light. Light will not be denied. And all will be revealed. And so we just open up our hands, Jesus, and we say, you can have all of us every part of our life, the parts that we're afraid to show you, it's yours. Transform it, heal it with your light. I wanna follow you. And it's in your name we pray, amen.